Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast with special guest, the Woke Antidote Boys. The co-host TB and SB joined me today for about an hour-long rip. I really love the conversation. Can't wait for you guys to get into it. But first, a little disclaimer. Every opinion here is the opinion of the uh, host and the guest and does not reflect the overall view of Green Candle Investments and, and should not be taken as financial advice. Anything you do here in this podcast should be referred to as not financial advice and uh, referred to as opinion. So like I said, again, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. All right, let's get into the rip. Whoosh. All right, what's up, everybody? It's Brandon from Green Candle Investments. We're here with another episode of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, and I have uh, some very special guests with us, but uh, first, a little housekeeping. Um, So obviously, Dan isn't here with me uh, on this one. So uh, for those that that follow all our stuff going on, uh, he's no longer going to be hosting the uh, podcast with me or doing any of the spaces or anything like that. He got a new position, so make sure to reach out to him and congratulate him for that. But unfortunately, that new position doesn't let him do any podcast or content creation or anything like that. So it'll be me flying solo uh, for the time being. Uh, But yeah, like I said earlier, we have some special guests. We got the hosts of the Woke Antidote podcast. Uh, It's a great podcast. You guys just started, right? So um why don't you get into a little bit of uh, you know what what brought you guys to start the podcast and uh, what it's all about? Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having us, Brandon, and uh, glad to glad to be here with DB. Yeah, so basically, what what happened was we we you know frequently text about this stuff, both me, me and TB, as well as in group chats, and we just thought it would be kind of fun to bring kind of the group group chat text to life because there's so many of these issues out there that you know people are you know talking about in their in their everyday life with other people um or it's sometimes people they actually don't have an outlet to to talk about all this crazy wokeness so we thought we would either be a uh we would be an addition to people who are interested in this kind of stuff or we would be just you know a companion if you're if you want a little antidote to the crazy wokeness that's taken over the world. So we figured we were already kind of chatting about this anyway, and then why not make it into a podcast form? Yeah. Just to add on there, you know, I think like for me personally, uh, I've always been very politically interested. So I've listened to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, big fan of Ben Shapiro breaking points specifically. Uh, and I've, as SB said, we have group chats where we talk about with friends and, what really kind of crystallized for us was just thinking, you know, there really isn't a podcast that connects us with the average American, the average person, just kind of seeing the craziness around them as well. Just, you know, just normal events, whether that be sports, uh, stocks, Bitcoin, et cetera. So that really was the brainchild for this podcast where we're just really talking to you as a normal person, sharing our authentic reactions to everything. So, you know, there's a lot of craziness in the world. You can get a lot of really deep, political coverage and other sources, but we figured this might be the one place where you can get some humor uh, as well as learn something along the way to kind of add some sanity to your life. 
Yeah, for sure. And I've definitely like, you know, I've listened to every one of the podcasts you guys have put out and it's, uh, it's great. You know, it's a, it seems like kind of, like you said, like a, a different light that you're, you're not really seeing in the, uh, I guess, era of politically correct and, and everything like that. So, um, why don't you guys go in a little bit uh, of your background? Uh, you know, you don't have to get too deep into the specifics, but um, just to kind of, I guess, shed a little bit of light as to, you know, the industries you guys work in, um, you know, where your, your podcast is based on. Yeah. So I um, work in investments as I've been, uh, as I've talked about on our spaces and whatnot. And that basically means that I'm in the markets every day, looking at all the news that comes through. Um, I, I focus specifically on a couple of key industries, uh, a lot of like communications type companies. And so I'm, I'm in the weeds of, of these media stories of the stories like Netflix companies like that. So I really enjoy doing that. It's a lot of fun. And then, you know, obviously the, the market, uh, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns to that. And it's a little bit different. Um, kind of the macro calls are a little bit different than the stock, the stock and company specific calls. But basically, I've got a love for the market. I've got a love for these numbers. And I, you know, it's been volatile lately, but I think the general concept of the market, but then also kind of where we are in this broader cycle of finance and the monetary system. Um, I think that's really fascinating, especially then how it relates to Bitcoin. So it's kind of like all those interests align where, you know, if you listen to the pod, you know, we, we like talking about Bitcoin a lot. We talk about the general macro environment and then we'll get into specific stocks as well if we're interested in it. So, yeah, so that that's the background. And um, I think I'd, I'd probably be investing on my own if I wasn't working in it. But certainly now that I'm working in it, um, I'm kind of in it all, all day, every day. Yeah, so a bit of background myself. Um, I'm in software sales, so I've worked in this industry my entire life. Um, don't have like any really technical background from college, but um, just living in this space, um, learning just a lot about software sales and um, you know being in the sales side, you get a lot of exposure to kind of what market trends are in the industry. So um, that's been really cool. Um, you know, kind of like my experience working in tech, um, I've found over the years, there's increasingly less of a space for people um, with just ideas and uh, values that are that are like mine. Um, it seems that there's kind of like this almost of a, a cult that has been fomented in uh, the tech world, which is, you know, I think everyone who's paying attention can understand that or is aware that this is going on, but I'm experiencing it firsthand. And um, that's a big reason why I wanted to start this podcast to kind of be that a voice of reason and, you know, show other people in similar situations that they're not alone, that they're going through this too. But um, I speak about that a lot on the podcast, actually, just kind of navigating in the, the tech corporate world, um, kind of just navigating these these woke values that these com companies are espousing and uh, kind of my reaction to all that and how I handled it or wish I had. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of it's crazy out there. Hopefully that with more people speaking up, that one day could get to a world where everyone's values are protected and that's ultimately all we want. Yeah, I mean, you nailed, the, you nailed it on the head there, both of you guys. I mean, I feel like, uh, 
you know, I've, I've heard stories of, you know, if you lean a certain direction, uh, mostly like, you know, Republicans, but so to speak, but if you, if you lean that way, you have to be kind of quiet about your views. But if you're the other way, um, you know, people can be a little bit more outspoken, which, you know, it seems pretty hypocritical. Um, and I also think, you know, there, there's definitely like interesting views on, um, you know, other aspects. Uh, I'm curious to hear, uh, I know, you know, you've talked about it a little bit in our spaces SB, but, um, the overall, I guess, reaction to Bitcoin as far as like, you know, the stock bros or the fiat bros as, uh, as you like to call them, um, how, how they react to it. Do, are they starting to come around? Um, you know, are they starting to understand the tech? Are they seeing the, I guess, the big momentum behind it? Or is this still, um, are they still just not really getting it and understanding it? Yeah, I think it, there's a couple different splits of what people think of it. And there's definitely the the kind of the guy in the fiat world, and we'll, we'll use investments here because that's what I'm in, but it's the guy that's, he's had a pretty successful life. So he's worked in, or, or she's worked in investments for decades. They've got a nice investment portfolio built up. They've, they've succeeded. There's been a bull market in both equities and bonds for the last several decades. So they've done pretty well. And from their perspective, there's nothing really wrong with the current system. I would say that, you know, there's, there's different levels of believing in the Fed or not, but there's generally this, this kind of TradFi attitude that the Fed can fix everything. So yeah, maybe they got a little bit ahead of themselves and printed too much money in 2020, but it'll be fixed. And I think that person they don't get Bitcoin because they just don't get the use case for it. So you bring up Bitcoin to them and they just think it's useless speculation and they're not even going to try to understand it. So I think that's part part uh, one. I think the other part, some guys do see a potential for it, but they and I can't believe they, they do, but they just can't get over the volatility aspect. So, you know, I, I go and explain to them and I say, Look, it's volatile now. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be volatile forever. If you're monetizing an asset 10 years after creation, it's going to be volatile. I'll give the example and I'll compare it to gold, where do we think gold became the global monetary standard within 10 years after it was initially found? No. So obviously, very different situation now versus thousands of years ago, but it's the same general concept that it's going to take a little bit of a while for mass adoption. And they just want it right now. So I think those are those are the two cases. I definitely think there are people, and I, there's people at my work and people in the field that they get it 100% and they're in, and they have a decent chunk of their asset allocation in there. Um, and I think those people, they're more of the open-minded, creative people, and you know, not to my own horn, but they're the kind of people that they're at least open to the idea that the current monetary system we're in isn't working well. And I think I have a decent perspective where I've been working within this system. This is my livelihood. I think the system is crazy. I think the, the, the whatever we created in this kind of monster of a system that really has, has been pretty negative in terms of, you know, the, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. I, I work in the system. I live the system. And I understand that there's something really wrong with it and we need a new system. So that's, I think that's the piece that, there are some people there, but in general, I, I have found that that's been the minority. 
All right. Well, TB, what about you? I know you're more of the, the tech side of things. Um, so is there still like, I guess, people open-minded to it? Is it a little bit a, f- a flip side of the coin? Like are people more interested in the technology, but not necessarily like the Bitcoin ethos, if that makes sense? Sorry about that. I just lost my uh, AirPods dot on me. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Let's go for it. All right, awesome. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I think I've heard your question. How is like the tech world respond to Bitcoin? Yeah, it basically, are, are people understanding the tech, but, uh, you know, and kind of embracing that aspect, but not necessarily the ethos, or is it th- just, you know, a full-on embrace of Bitcoin? Yeah, so first from like, I would say like an adoption perspective, um, the tech space is a really natural fit for cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. I would say the median age of folks that I work with is in that, you know, probably that 25 to 32. Um, that's, you know, I've, I've worked for very early stage startups. So that would be like about the median age. So people who relatively fresh out of college who, um, you know, are much more privy to, uh, you know, mobile technology, uh, digitization. So uh, for them, something like Bitcoin just seems like a very natural fit. And also from their own experience, they've seen the value of their dollar just shrink year after year. So they're looking for an alternative form of currency. So um, it's been, it's been much more receptive compared to what SB has been describing. Um, but in terms of blockchain technology, um, I would say some folks in our industry kind of, uh, they miss that a little bit. They kind of get caught up in uh, just trying to make a quick buck off of this. And uh, they're a little purely looking at this from a financial lens. Um, so they're just like, you know, what's the next altcoin that's going to pump and I can make a ton of money. Uh, but in my exact industry, the, the folks at the top and on the executive team, they're really looking forward on how you can they can leverage their current technology with with blockchain. So they've been really interested in what's coming up with uh, the metaverse and how blockchain is going to feed into that um, and all the, you know, the, the currency that's going to flow into that. Um, and they want really want to meet people where they will be. So it's kind of a more of a forward thinking strategy. Um, so. Yeah, I would say overall tech has been very receptive to to Bitcoin and and blockchain. So uh, it's pretty cool working in this because it kind of validates all my reasonings for being so pro-Bitcoin. Yeah, I definitely get that. But, uh, you know, as a a Bitcoin, I I don't know if I want to call myself a Bitcoin maxi. Uh, I kind of find it hard to see. I I guess, you know, all the purposes for blockchain, I think that there's a lot of... um, you know, use cases for it. But I think that right now there's a lot of things that are being kind of overdone um, and not everything necessarily needs to be on a blockchain. Um, Are you seeing, I guess, somewhat of that where people are just trying to put everything on a blockchain or is it, um, do you think like the use cases are still kind of reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I think we saw a very similar example back in 2016 i guess i'd I'd say that was like the first surge of of crypto and everyone and their mother was talking about it right 
Um, so I think we're seeing, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the second wave or another renewed rush. And specifically with NFTs, um, that's like been such a huge uh, thing in, in the tech space where uh, people are really trying to monetize and make a ton of money off of these pixelated pictures. And we saw the Board 8 uh, Yacht Club, that's worth millions of dollars for each of them. And people are just trying to repeat that process now. Um, so I see that people are kind of throwing a lot of silly money at that. Um, so to your point, there's a lot of things getting thrown on the blockchain that I'm not, you know, you know I'm a skeptic now. Who knows? Maybe it'll bear out in the future. You know, I was once a skeptic of of Bitcoin back in the day, so shows what I know. But um, yeah, I definitely think like everyone's just trying to profit off of this. Like I said, it's a get rich quick scheme type of mentality. Well, I see that at my work as well, where there are a lot of people in finance that are interested in, in crypto. It's, and I would say it's actually less the NFTs, but at least in my space, people really love the DeFi angle. And that just that is is a tough one for me because it feels like every single day there's just a new DeFi hack. And you kind of wonder how are these funds even safe? And it's interesting because in in the the world of the current markets, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the fixed income markets, you really can't, you know, until a couple couple weeks ago, you can't get that great of a yield. I mean, what's the ten year treasury? It's less than two percent. What's you know, investment grade bonds might be a hundred basis points or one hundred fifty basis points outside of that. Maybe high yield that's been backing up, but that could be another two or three percent. But even then. You're not really getting that much beyond five or six percent, whereas these DeFi loans or, or what have you, or yield farming, I mean, they're they're just putting up ridiculous numbers. And so I sometimes talk to people in the space, and they're kind of getting hyped on this this DeFi stuff, and I'm just looking at them saying, you know, if something's too good to be true, it usually is. If if you're looking at you know even in even an eight percent stablecoin yield or I mean, people legitimately get excited about 100% plus annual yields, but they're going to hold it for a couple of days or a week or something. So that kind of stuff, I, I just almost think like, I, and they, some, some of the people actually admit it where they really are in it for the short-term speculation as opposed to the long-term belief. And I, I would consider myself a Bitcoin maxi. I, I identify as, as a Bitcoin maxi. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm buying Bitcoin. I'm not buying anything else uh, in in the space. I'm buying Bitcoin. I I never intend to sell it. Hopefully, way back way in the future, if I need to use some Bitcoin, I can probably borrow against it if and when it's the the world reserve currency. But yeah, I think that's that's a difference of of opinion where I think the the people thinking long term and holding long term absolutely are the Bitcoiners, and that is backed up by the data and the hodl waves and all that. And then I think the people and some sometimes the people are more interested in technology than sound money. I mean, a lot of the people I, I find that I know that are in crypto more than Bitcoin, they don't really understand the store value use case or they don't agree with it or they, you know, they might not understand why gold was ever in, gold was ever used as money. So that's kind of their their thought. And they're really much more on the technology. And, you know, it's at this stage of the game, I, I think if there were kind of um i call them non-degenerate use cases but it, i mean if there were legitimate use cases out there i think you know we'd have them if there was if there was a social network decentralized that could that could be built on 
Ethereum, right? Let's see it. I've, people have been talking about that for several years. If there is, you know, I, I keep seeing Chris Dixon is talking about this helium, uh, a helium token where they're trying to build a telecommunications network, but they don't have any infrastructure and assets about that. So how does that actually work? So yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, there's energy into the space. There's money into the space, obviously, but you know, I'm sticking with with the corn, and that's just going to be what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, same here. And I, uh, but I also, you know, I kind of run into that a lot with, um, you know, more of my friends that I talk to to about this when they know they, you know, hear about my podcast or stuff that I'm into. Um, some of them try to get me into their shit coins and, and things like that, and they'll tell me they're in the deep uh, deep ends of some Reddit sub subreddit which has like you know, a hundred or, or very few amount of people. And I have to go through this back way to purchase this coin. And that it's so little that if you buy a little bit now and, you know, it becomes the next Doge or Shiba or whatever it is, it's going to shoot to the moon. Um, but, you know, I guess, I guess my personal opinion on that is, I think it's just, you know, people trying to reach for that get rich quick scheme, but I think it's more so because they need to they, they see the the amount of inflation and everything going up where, you know, the general, you know, the, the average, what, 9 to 11% yield on the S&P 500 just isn't appealing anymore. And they need to get those big yields. And especially with, you know, inflation and, um, you know, the crazy macro environment that we're in right now, um, everybody's just kind of chasing that yield because they're seeing the devaluing of their dollar. Um and so I know we've kind of talked about this briefly in our spaces, but um, I know that you, you uh, SB specifically, you get you go into the the that group of people that's more middle class, I guess that that you know has to be like a part time um, you know hedge fund manager on the side for themselves to kind of continue to grow their wealth. So why don't you get into your your thoughts about that and uh, yeah, why why you think that is. Yeah, well, I will get into that. But first, I'll say uh, when you were talking about uh, the Reddits and and going to crazy places to buy, I mean, t- TV, that, that was us in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were on every single crypto exchange there was. And I was buying God knows what, like AntShares, uh, now known as Neo, Lisk, um, all these <laughs> altcoins and Oh Amazing. my god! Yeah, I, I like regret how much Bitcoin I burned to buy these things. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember going in, and it was sort of Bitcoin was boring, and and that time too in mid twenty seventeen, which is when we were, were first getting into it, it was really expensive to send Bitcoin too. So I I remember thirty dollars plus to do a transaction because that was right around when um the fork happened and Bitcoin cash split off. So yeah, I I remember you know you'd buy Ethereum. And then you'd just send it, you'd send Ethereum onto a bunch of different exchanges, buy the hottest coin, and then hope it got even hotter. But yeah, it's, it's totally is people <laughs> trying to get rich quick. Um, but yeah, those were, those were funny times, but to your question. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like safety and Pierre Richard of, of Bitcoiners, they were, they were the first guys that kind of. I listened to that really crystallized the point of you have to work twice for your money. So you not only have to work for it in your everyday job, but then you go home and you say, well, you know, inflation is two, three, four percent officially. It's probably more like seven to ten percent. 
um, if you have the cash sitting in a bank account, it's not earning anything. You have to basically invest in stocks. I mean, what do you what do you do with your four hundred one k money? I mean, everyone immediately invests at least the you know the company match in that because it's a good deal. But it's just kind of that's that's the default. And what people haven't realized is that the stock market it's not really saving. It's still a risky investment. It would be one thing if we went back to our parents' generation and they put money into a bank account and they got seven percent. Or they put it in, you could, you could buy treasury bonds 20, 30 years ago that were 10%. And that was risk-free. I mean, the treasury bond is the risk-free rate. And that's completely different than the stock market. And, and we're seeing it now where it, it seems like the Fed probably blew a, a decent stock market bubble or at least a, a tech bubble over the past 18 months with all the liquidity. And, you know, if you're someone that invests in indices, you know, you, you're down, but you know, if you're someone who's invested in some of these high-flying tech stocks, not, you know, I have some of those stocks for sure because some of these companies are doing really interesting things. You could be down 50% plus on your investments. It's unbelievable. So I, I think that unfortunately, we're just being pushed and pushed and pushed further along the risk curve in order to try to beat inflation. And that's just no way for a country to run. It's no way for a person to have to either stress about it or they outsource it to a financial advisor and then they're paying even more money that way. I mean, it's just the the incentives are all misaligned. The situation is, you know, we're, we're just in a bad spot where we, we are so financialized as a country where we have to be always thinking about this stuff. And it, I just, I think there's a lot of problems in the country, but people obsessing over, over money, I, I think that's absolutely an issue. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day that said, you know, I, I, they think that, you know, my generation now is is one of the few or the, maybe the first one that realizes that it, it's not going to cut it with just one stream of income. You can't save your way to it. Um, you know, our parents kind of grew up, grew us or raised us on, uh, you know, just save, 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 invest in your 401k, do the company match, work hard, and you'll be fine. Um but my generation has, has seemed to be more creative and find other ways to to make money. Um, and so we're, I'm seeing a lot of people work a bunch of different jobs and, and things like that um, just to increase their income at a rapid rate. And, you know, it's seemingly it, it, it doesn't seem like their income's growing quick enough. Um, you know, we have the conflict going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I want to get your guys thoughts on on that and how that's overall affecting. But a quick little side note here is just, uh, you know, I think we had Jen Psaki and, and Biden cut off uh, the oil and gas from uh, from Russia recently, I think as of today. Um, and at least here in the state of Florida, we're hitting all time highs at in gas. And I think the average across the country is, uh, I believe, at four dollars and 11 cents per gallon, which I think, uh, you know, at the end of 2020, it was just around $2 or under $2.50. So we're seeing everything, um, not only gas, but food prices and everything else skyrocket. And so to your point, SB, the inflation uh, being reported as you know a couple percentage points obviously isn't c- uh, taking these prices uh, into effect either. Um, so how do you think like the Russia and Ukraine uh, situation is going to play out? Do you think, uh, you know, we're just kind of in the way of the, 
uh, Jack Dorsey hyperinflation? Or uh, do you think we'll somehow figure out a way how to cool this thing down? On, on our current track, I don't think we have the right answer or we, we have heard the right answer from the current administration. I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. When we think about the pandemic over the past couple of years, uh, people were driving less. So uh, production in our refineries was was lowered and it never increased to meet the demand once things open up back up. But then also you have an administration that is highly resistant to to oil and they're, they've put all their chips on the table for green energy. Um, and frankly, the, the rest of the Western Hemisphere has done the same. We've seen the, the EU, they've really just hindered themselves by becoming overly reliant now on Russia to provide oil and they don't have the means of providing their own because they've gone so far into green energy. And right now what we're hearing is that the solution to all this inflation is, yeah, we're gonna cut off uh, Russia, um, uh, Russian imports of oil, which I think was the right call to, to be frank, but they're not countering that by then saying we are going to now be autonomous and you know providing our own oil. They still want to pursue these, uh, you know, these virtue signaling green energy pursuits, and it's not going to answer the problem. And you know, we're not hearing any empathy from the administration. We had Pete Buttigieg on the other day and Jen Psaki just saying. You know, it's your patriotic duty. You can buy an electric uh, vehicle, which costs what sixty, seventy thousand dollars. So um, they're trying to say that's the solution, and it's, it's not for the average American who relies on oil. If that's part of their job, they're feeling real pain right now. So I don't see us on our current track. I don't see that resolving the issue that we have now. Yeah, on the energy point, uh, part of the last episode title we had was uh, on our podcast. U.S. energy policy stays woke while Americans go broke. So this is exactly what's been happening where, yeah, the the U.S. opened themselves up and the West as well to Russia having a lot of power here. I mean, I, I did think it was interesting today when you had this ridiculous reversal in stocks when I think the, the headline that came out was that Russia was or I think the headline was that Ukraine was open to signaling they would not be or committing that they would not be in, in NATO. And then I think stocks pretty much are like the tech stocks, they went up from maybe they were negative 1% on the day to 2%. And I think we, I, don't, I forget exactly where we ended, but basically that shows you that if and when there is a resolution, there's probably a lot of upside. I know Bitcoin like quickly jumped out to above 39K. So I think that's the positive. And you know, if you if you think about what Russia wants to accomplish from their perspective, I, I could see a situation in which it, it's not an immediate win by Russia. And it's, it's not an immediate conquering of the country, which I think some people kind of initially thought. But you, you mean, Ukraine's a pretty big country. Right. So it's not going to be anything that settles down immediately. But could could this be done in four to six weeks? Maybe. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's, it seems like Russia is making, you know, progress according to them to, to take parts of Ukraine. So if we do end up getting a resolution, I think there's there's a positive, which the market today obviously kind of uh, kind of implied. The problem, of course, is that if and when that if and when we do get that resolution, we still have high inflation. We still have terrible domestic policies. We still have the Fed 
deciding on whether they want to raise interest rates or not. So it's not like we kind of get out of the war and then it's totally gangbusters. And now I'm seeing that maybe GDP growth for the next quarter could even be negative. And I just think that's just ludicrous to consider that the economy, the output was so negative in 2020 when we shut down and it's still not back to normal. And yet we might even have a recession soon. So that's just unbelievable. So yeah, it's, we've had a, a pretty significant decline, not that we can't decline further, but the, the trouble is just that there's not much to look forward to on the other side of this, uh, conflict ending but certainly i think a a conflict ending and there not being nuclear war is a positive um obviously it's a positive but i you're starting to see a lot of kind of experts say you know and and people in the market say yeah i am worried about a nuclear war i'm i'm not saying it's 50% or even 25% but it's kind of creeping up the probability list and if that's the case then that means if there if there is not one then we can, you know, rip back a little bit. But yeah, generally, it's just a, uh, it's a tough market out there. It's uh it's really volatile. And there's just, a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot of negative news out there beyond just, you know, you know, one of several options. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just, you know, going to get tougher because there's a lot of uncertainties that you kind of listed out there, uh, whether we raise rates and uh, how quickly this conflict will end or if it'll be dragged out or, or what. Um, and so I, I think that there's kind of deeper rooted issues that, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to uh, back in 2020 when this uh, whole, you know, COVID pandemic kind of started. Um and I kind of want to get into some of these like shadow companies um, that saw extreme growth um, throughout the pandemic, uh, strictly in my opinion, because they, they had like, you know, easy access to capital and they kept kicking the can down the road. They never really, you know, made any money or anything like that. Um, and uh, I think that growth stocks are going to kind of, you know, hit a pretty tough tough way uh coming here soon you know uh um i originally uh invested in uh arc and a couple of them i got fooled by kathy wood and her returns um, i think in, tw- in 2020 <laughs> uh, maybe like so- some other people did but uh i have since sold at a loss unfortunately um so maybe i'm just a, a bad investor or just getting into it but um what do you guys think of like these shadow companies and these growth companies? Do you think that we're going to have a lot of these, I guess, tech and, and growth companies just kind of bomb in the next couple years? Is that going to be, you know, kind of uh, some of the runoff effect that, that we see from, you know, this, this COVID pandemic sort of coming out of it, money printing, crazy inflation. And then, you know, now this Russia and Ukraine conflict. Yeah, I I think we're going to have I think there, I think some companies are going to fail, but then some it's going to be an incredible opportunity because I think the situation we find ourselves in now is that a lot companies historically over these past several years were totally running deficits or they weren't free cash flow positive at all, and it was all about what is the future growth. So the fundamentals didn't matter; it was just the growth numbers. And now we're getting to a point where actually the fundamentals matter again. And what investors are going to have to do, which they didn't have to do over the last several years, 
they're going to have to determine, is this company actually investing for growth and they have a long runway ahead of them? And the reason they're free cash flow neutral to negative is that they actually have a lot of growth ahead. Or are these companies just simply structurally unprofitable? They've been maybe hiding or miscategorizing OPEX as CAPEX, and they basically have a structurally you know, pretty weak business. And so the example that I like talking about is Netflix, and that's one that everybody knows. So I historically have always disliked the, the fact that they were running such huge cash uh, deficits. They were running... I think over 3 billion at least one year and they were originally for 2020 before COVID helped them with uh, getting a lot more subs and slowing spending. They were going to lose, I think 2 billion plus at least in 2020. And I I can understand a little bit of investment, but when you're losing $3 billion at, you know, maybe it was 150 million worldwide subs at the time. I'm not really sure. I I like that. It kind of feels irresponsible to me to be losing 3 billion plus dollars so I think a company like that, and there's other companies in the space, like like Roku, for example, is one where you know they were they had a huge multiple, and then they're now saying they're investing for growth, and that stocks took a tumble. But I think these companies that they just kind of and, and the market was giving it to them too, but they the these companies themselves chased the growth metrics over maybe spending more efficiently, and that's why when I look at the media space, I find it very interesting that you look at a company like, uh, well, I'll give two uh, examples versus Netflix. So if you look at a company like Disney versus Netflix, Disney's taken a, a lot longer to ramp up the original content, but they're trying to have, you know, very high caliber content, the Marvel, Marvel series, FX is ramping content. So they're not throwing a smattering of content at you. They're trying to be very particular about having good content. And they're able to do that because they have an existing business that produces a lot of free cash flow and they have a lot of IP and library to work off of. So that's one example. And then alternatively, I'll I'll look at Apple TV and say that Apple TV made the um, decision early on that they were not going to license or rent any content. So for example, you've got Netflix is paying over a hundred million dollars a year to rent Seinfeld from Sony, for example. Um, Apple hasn't done that. Apple's only gone originals. And what has that meant? Well, it's meant that initially there just haven't been as many Apple TV Plus subscribers as there are for other um, streaming services just because there's just not that much content, right? In 2019, 2020, and they were hurt by by the production um, slowdown as well with COVID. You know, there were 10, 15, 20 shows on the first season. So, you know, maybe you, you liked one show, but it's, it clearly couldn't serve as your main streamer. Well, now it's 2022, 23, 24. They're starting to get a lot of movies in the service there. If they get 20 to 25 new shows a year, well, then you've got, you know, the 20 shows that premiered premiered in 2019. You've got season three of those in 2022. You've got another 20 coming online in in the next year in 2020 and 21. So all of a sudden there's a ton of content on this, the service that a lot of people actually haven't watched because they didn't have the service. Um, just be, because they didn't they didn't need to have it because there was so little content. So their Apple is making a very big upfront investment, which they can do because they make money from their other businesses, of course. But they're making a very intense upfront investment, but they're not wasting it on what I would say is renting content like Netflix is, or they're not wasting it on they're attempting to make prestige HBO quality shows 
every single show. They're not making these mediocre, you know, some of the, some of these shows that Netflix makes are, are pretty terrible, I think. So they're not doing that. And then finally on, on the Apple side, we just heard today that they are doing a uh, streaming deal with major league baseball. So I, I think that's fascinating where, so you get all these baseball fans that are probably an older demo too, that they're all of a sudden, Oh, they want to watch their team in a Friday night and they can't watch it on cable because these games are now exclusive to Apple. So yeah, you pop on Apple, you've never heard of it before. You've never been on the Apple service. And when you get Apple TV to watch this game, it is an instant customer acquisition. Now it's not a, it's not, you know, not expensive by any means, but instant customer acquisition. And that person that signs up on Apple is going to look at the rest of that content and it's probably going to watch some of it. So Apple's kind of chosen to be a little more, a little bit more patient than a company like Netflix play the longer game and say, we'll create this great content. Like everyone saw that John Hamm ad where he was coming through all the Apple content they had in the platform. We will make all this great content first. It'll be a little bit, it'll take a little bit of time. Um, We're not going to win immediately, but then we'll layer it on MLB. Then we might layer it on Sunday ticket. And then we really start to get in the groove where we have a lot more customers a lot more subscribers coming on. So we're getting revenue from that and can invest back in the business. So I, I very much like to think of myself as a long-term thinker. I want, I, I always want, I'm looking at companies, make the investments now because that's the best possible way you're going to grow. And I think we're going forward. We really are going to see a difference between companies that invested properly versus, and, and actually invested for growth versus these companies that just, you know, and, and Netflix accounting, you can look at it. It's been a topic of late. Maybe Netflix, I'm sure there's plenty of other companies like this too, but maybe they were classifying some some OPEX as actually CapEx and they just have that structurally low, lower profitable business. So yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be volatile, but it's going to be a fun market for people really doing the work and to have a convicted view on something because on, on the flip side to what you said if a company is a really great company and they do happen to be investing for the future and have negative free cash flow, they're going to get dinged with everyone else. And then you can go in and say, no, I actually think this is a great company. They're investing in great things for the future. I'm buying low on when growth stocks are in sale and you'll make a fortune that way. Yeah. I mean, so I like agree. somewhat go ahead, TB. Sorry. Um, somewhat related to this. Um, you know, just talking about companies that kind of fallen apart before. I mean, not loosely related to tech, but you look at Peloton. Um, they, you know, set their goals much too high. And, you know, I have friends who actually work there and they're having mass layoffs right now because they just can't perform at the level that they were during the pandemic. They were one of the unique companies that benefited from it when everyone was locked down and the government was handing out stimulus checks. So everyone was getting a brand new Peloton bike, myself included. Um, but now now they can't keep up with uh, you know, all those lofty goals that they had projected for themselves. Um, so now that they're looking at potentially being bought out by a bidder and look who's look, looking at them, you have Amazon and Apple, as we're talking about, you know, and I think even Disney's involved as well as a potential bidder. So these companies are kind of trying to really make themselves you know, expand their tentacles and get their customers more entrenched in their in their network, if you will. So, you know, for Apple, it's a really good fit because they just came out with Apple Fitness. Amazon's really becoming the, you know, all in one place. They, they're really investing in their video platform and video games specifically. 
Um, so, uh, you know, companies like that are just really forward thinking and, um, you know, Peloton's really suffering for that because, you know, their, their projections were much too high and that were artificially inflated in a very unique scenario. And they didn't really plan ahead for when things went back to normal. They were kind of banking on everyone counting on Peloton as their home gym. And now things are opening back up. That's not really as appealing as it once was. Yeah, TB, I think that's a great point. I was thinking of Peloton as I was talking as well. And one addition to that is that I think there's companies out there and investors did this too, where they projected that the growth they saw in the pandemic was actually the long-term growth of the business. Or maybe they they thought, oh, the, the TAM, the total addressable market that we projected prior to the pandemic, it actually got a lot bigger. And in reality, the TAM didn't get bigger at all. It just got filled up during the pandemic and it's the same company. So I think there's a lot of that and people so far that have called that correctly with some of these companies like Peloton, you know, if you, if you were short Peloton from high, high hundreds, you're, you're sitting here pretty pretty right now. Yeah. And I think to, uh, to, to both of your points, it seems like a lot of these companies, they have some sort of revenue that they were able to fall back on prior to, uh, you know, the pandemic. So like Apple was brought up, right? So Apple has, you know, the computers their phones, their AirPods, which have done really well as well. And then now they're, you know, willing to take a little bit more risks and not need to make, you know, money on Apple Plus, Apple TV, and they're even making deals with the MLB in the midst of this lockout, which I think is pretty interesting as well. Um, but I'm a baseball guy too. So I, I do enjoy Friday night baseball and everything like that. And um, they're finding like a good, a big problem with, uh, you know, baseball streaming services. I don't know if you guys are baseball guys or anything like that, but I've had MLB TV for the past couple seasons and it's a, uh, it's a pain in the ass. I can't watch my own, uh, you know, if I'm I'm in Tampa, so if I want to watch the Rays, I can't watch it on the MLB streaming service because I have to watch it on like Fox or or whatever um, because it's a local game and it's blacked out, so it doesn't really make any sense. And then, um, you know, I'm a Cubs fan, so some games that are on marquee network, uh, I'm, I don't get access to on the MLB TV either. So it's uh, it's a real problem, and hopefully, you know, Apple could kind of come in and, and swoop in and and fix some of that problem. Um, and then to your point about Peloton too, um, you know, it's the same thing. It's just a, it's essentially a bike with an iPad. Um, and then now these big companies like Amazon, um, you know, Apple and, uh, these, uh, other companies that could come in and swoop it. Now they have their chance to, to put their content on this bike, um, where Peloton, you know, just kind of has their own you know, workout content. Well, maybe I want to watch a movie while, while riding the bike for an hour or something, uh, you know, instead of doing this intense cardio workout. I think that kind of makes it reach a different demo. And uh, from there, it'll kind of help it, I guess, somewhat expand too. Um, so do you think like a lot of these big companies, um, you know, that have like the constant cash flow coming in are just going to start swallowing up? Because uh, it sounds like, you know, Amazon, Apple, and like, you know, those successful FANG stocks, you know, maybe we should change that N to an M for Microsoft <laughs> or something, um, are going to start swallowing up some of these little guys that are making riskier investments that aren't necessarily panning out. Yeah. In, I, I, in, I, in my space. 
Yeah, go ahead, TV. Yeah, yeah, dark for sure. Yeah, th- just a really quick note on mine because SB, I know you're way more educated in, in this area, but I'm seeing it firsthand right now in in my space and kind of the um, startup or even the ones that are a little more established. But I wouldn't you wouldn't call them you know legacy enterprise by any means. Um, right now, I'm seeing a lot of private equity firms buying up a lot of these tech companies. So. Um, if that's happening in that space, then to your point, then absolutely, I could see these giant conglomerations absolutely swallowing up these, you know, not, I wouldn't call them little guys, but in in comparison, yeah, uh, I could definitely see them swallowing them up. That's fascinating to hear because I can totally see it. And it makes me think, you know, we, we're Bitcoiners here. We, we like the long-term thinking. It's companies that have a good business and a strong balance sheet those are the ones that should survive. So a company I like talking about, Flexport, they have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, but they they just raised a billion dollars at a, a $9 billion valuation, I think. So Flexport's like an, an operating system for freight worldwide. So um, freight containers and ships and uh, air, airlines, air, airplanes that are shipping um, and whatnot. And they they raised the billion dollars and then they also after that he the the CEO is active on Twitter he had a thread that they have 1.6 billion of assets in the company so you kind of think oh that's interesting why did they just raise a billion dollars after they had raised one billion in 20 I think it was 19 and they still had 600 billion on the balance sheet so I think partly is that they're maybe they're going to go out and buy some Bitcoin. Because he's he's a big uh, he he said that they own Bitcoin, but I think more importantly, he he said we have we need to have a strong balance sheet because for whatever hits us, we need to be ready for it, and especially in a fast moving space like freight. And I think that's a really smart call. We're we're going to see it with all of these bigger companies having a strong balance sheet, being able to pounce at the right time. This is long-term strategic thinking where maybe you don't always go 100 miles an hour. You have that strong balance sheet. So then when the time comes where when a lot of people are stressed and maybe people are getting margin calls and people got to sell distressed equity, that's when you come in as the strong company. And I think that I, I want to live in a world where every company is just, has a strong balance sheet because I think that's just going to be a better world and better economy. Yeah, I agree with that, too. And I think, you know, we're kind of getting in this environment where it's getting a little bit harder to get access to mint or it's going to get harder to get access to money. So a lot of these companies that, you know, like you said, that don't make good investments or are having, you know, tough balance sheets are going to have to find ways to either get creative or they're going to get either, you know, absorbed by bigger guys like Apple, Amazon, um, what have you, or, uh, you know, they're just going to fail. Um, so I think uh, we're, we're, we kind of saw that in a microcosm of the of the restaurant industry, at least at, on local levels and in certain areas of the United States. Um, and I, I know Tahini's in Canada has gotten really popular for accepting Bitcoin and things like that. So I think um, as far as like, you know, the smaller guys go, it might be uh, a trend to to sort of see a lot of these smaller businesses accept uh, Bitcoin or payments through the Lightning Network, whether that's, you know, through Strike or, you know, Block, implement something like that, because they already have like a peer-to-peer network 
um, with a lot of small businesses that use. Uh, but I think it's going to be a, a tough time to be a small business owner in the next couple of years. And I think, um, you know, the ones that get creative and find ways to lower their overhead costs because, you know, minimum wage is going up across the, across the country. And then, uh, you know, same with uh, corporate taxes. So um, I, de- I, I don't know how it's all going to play out. I, I have a very bad feeling about it and I don't, you know, feel very strongly about small businesses going forward. But um, yeah, I just think uh, overall, the companies that that get creative and find ways to to lower expenses are the ones that gonna, I guess, prevail. But but I mean, a time will tell. I guess. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, well, it's also these companies that they don't require access, constant access to the debt markets. I mean, we've talked about this on the spaces as well, where some of these companies are just incredibly over levered, and maybe they're not over levered in the sense of the 2022 markets, but I mean, there's so many companies out there that are leveraging up to buy back stock. And then the stock immediately falls 50% over the course of six months. So, I mean, that's just an incredible value destruction. And, you know, I see it in my space where a lot of these companies are, they're levering up to buy back stock rather than investing in the business. And actually, if we stay in the streaming theme, Viacom is a company that if you if you go way back and you look at Viacom stock price, I think they were buying their stock at like 70 to 100 for several years. Um, AMC Networks is another one buying their stock way high. And these stocks are 30, 40 right now. So they they not only wasted so much money doing that, but that money could have been spent on more content, on streaming, on something like that. So you're getting these companies that are spending on financial engineering on one. And then secondly, they're they're carrying an irresponsible amount of debt where they they would not be able to repay the debt. They always have to refinance. And then you get into that's just what the federal government does. We when the federal government, when we raise debt, we have no intention of ever paying it back off with earnings or tax, I guess, if you wanted to call it that from from the US taxpayer base. We only have an intention to just grow the general economy so we have better metrics and then we refinance it and, oh, our GDP to debt ratio looks better. So I see that same thing playing out in in the the world that that I look at, which is these companies have way too much debt. They won't be able to pay it back with their current free cash flow. And then what happens if there's a recession? What if their cash flow gets cut in half? And so now all of a sudden they, they wouldn't have access to the debt markets if we, if we had a situation like that and they can't pay the, the debt down because they have worse earnings. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. So like we've been saying, these companies that are long-term thinking and they generate a lot of cash already and have a strong balance sheet, they're going to be the ones that are going to prosper in the long run. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, a, a lot of interesting times ahead. Um, so, uh, we've been going for here about like an hour or so. So I think, uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. Um, this is it for the Sunday scary stock talk podcast. I have the, uh, co-host of the woke antidote podcast. We got TB here and SB. Um, you guys have put out six episodes to date right now. Do you guys put it on, on like a set schedule or is it just, uh, I guess when you, when you got time to rip it out. Yeah, we started off recording 
every Sunday, but just with the way the world's going these days, we've started moving to uh, doing Tuesdays and Sundays now. So who knows, might even start doing more if it, if it necessitates. But yeah, it's been a fun ride for sure. Yeah, and I would encourage everyone too. So if you if you check out our podcast or check out the the Twitter account that we run, we got a bunch of hashtags for everybody. So if you uh, are in agreement with us and you think that there's too much wokeness in the world, we got hashtag woke in the wild, hashtag libs gone too far, epic gaslighting, and woke whiplash. So those are kind of self explanatory, but. You know, woke in the wild. It's when you just see some random wokeness. Uh, Lives gone too far. Basically, when you know they have just gone crazy on an issue. Um, epic gaslighting, of course, and then woke whiplash is our latest one. It's when, uh, like in the State of the Union, you had uh, Biden attempt to claim that the Democrats were for uh, funding the police, which was just a, a complete. 180 from from what the democrats had been saying uh a few months back so yeah if you've got any examples of those definitely uh tweet them tweet at us and maybe uh we'll, we'll have you on the pod yeah for sure i've been having fun with those fa- those hashtags on twitter as well i like to uh search them and see all the crazy shit that's going on that you guys are finding so uh definitely follow <laughs> them, follow them on twitter at the woke antidote and uh, find them on Spotify. And are you guys everywhere too? Everywhere you can find your podcasts. Uh, we are going to be on Apple Podcasts soon. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. So they'll be they're on Spotify right now. They'll be on Apple Podcasts soon. Uh, give them a follow. And uh, yeah, check them out. They got six episodes. I've listened to every single one. I think uh, each one's getting better and better. So uh, they add a little bit of a sports talk in there too, which I I enjoy as well. Uh, it was a tough look for UTB on your uh, Bengals pick, or uh, yeah, or, was it Rams? <laughs> You're off by half a point, right? So oh, Vegas always knows what a what a beat that was. Uh, tough, that's why they have tall look. buildings. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, that's it for the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. We'll be back and uh, talk to you guys uh, next week.